0: pray. Oh, Father, we are so grateful for the truth that we just sang, that even when um, the enemy hopes to destroy us, every circumstance is turned for our good. And we praise you and we give you thanks joyfully for the good work that you're doing in our hearts and how you're changing us Only you can do what needs to be done in us. And we ask you, Father, no matter what the cost, do it for your glory and for our great and eternal joy. Father, we praise you for texts like this that just speak to the reality of life and the reality of our hearts and the reality of of our privilege. Father, I pray that you would give me grace to communicate these truths in a way that is true and not in error, but also in a way that will change us and save some. I pray for great encouragement on the part of those who are suffering in various ways this morning. Pray, Lord, that they would realize afresh that they should not think that this is something new or something that should be unexpected, but it's, it's just your way of sanctifying us. And we're thankful for it. And we ask you, Father, to help us now as I preach and as those who are here listen. Be glorified in it, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, rule number one, uh, there will be no crying or or anything like that in this message today. <laughs> So I told Shana, "Just you can you can cry if you want to, but just don't look up here." <laughs> so, in the darkest nights of the soul, God upholds His people with His powerful grace. I realize that for some of you, this message may be an unexpected departure for. From the book of Romans, I was supposed to start Romans 7 this week and and will not. We'll we'll get around to that, Lord willing. But when I considered how my recent illness may affect this church, I, I decided that the best way that I can shepherd the church, my family, and my own soul I decided the best way to do it would be to offer a message on how Christians should think about and respond to personal suffering. How does God want us to think and respond to personal suffering? Now, I'm, I'm speaking to people who love Jesus. If you don't love Jesus, hang on till the end. I got a message for you as well. But to get us there, that is to get us to a place where we understand something of what God wants us to think and do in the midst of suffering, I've chosen to look at, together with you, Second Corinthians 12, 1 through 10. So if you have a Bible, stand with me and we will read the Word of God together. Uh, you can just follow along as I read Second Corinthians 12, 1 through 10. 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10. Now, Granted, we are jumping in the mid- into the middle of a very uh, emotion-filled context that we just won't have time to touch on this morning. Uh, we can touch on it a little bit, but I-, I can't do justice to it. So here's where we start. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Paul says, I must go on boasting. There is nothing to be gained by it. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. And so to keep, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I come I am content with weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. And you may be seated. In my briefcase, I often carry a small book that has occasionally been for me a a wonderful, wonderful help, especially in times of trouble when I don't know what to do or how even to pray. It's actually a compilation of Puritan prayers from past centuries. Among reform-minded Christians, this is a very popular and beloved book. Have you seen it? Here it is. This is my copy. And it is called The Valley of Vision. I just want to read a short section of this. It's actually the opening prayer. And it is called The Valley of Vision. And here's what it says. You have brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but see you in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold your glory. Let me learn by paradox." that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, to be, to be broken, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess everything, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells. And the deeper the well, the brighter the stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, your life in my death, your joy in my sorrows, your grace in my sin your riches in my poverty, your glory in my valley. I love this. It helps me to think how I should think about and pray about the difficulties of life. I think it's called the Valley of Vision because as these dear saints suffered, some of them under the persecution of Bloody Mary and others, As they suffered in various ways, they learned that the valley of suffering offers the clearest and brightest view of the glory of Christ. You don't typically see the glory of Jesus while you're watching the Avengers (laughs) or entertaining yourself in some lawful way. You are more apt to see him when you are suffering. Now, there is far more that we could say from this text. I wish we had two weeks to talk about it, but we don't. What I am going to say today, however, I think will be helpful to you and to me. Because all of us have suffered, all of us will suffer, and everyone you know will suffer. So I'll limit my thoughts here to five points. The question I want to answer is this. What truths should we believe and embrace when we find ourselves in the valley of suffering? What truths should we believe and embrace when we find ourselves in the valley of suffering? Well, first of all, when we find ourselves in the valley of suffering, we should remember that, number one, God leads all Christians into the valley. God leads every Christian into the valley, and he always has, even in the Old Testament. You think Psalm 23. And so here in verses 1 through 6, we read about this extraordinary man by the name of the Apostle Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles. And we don't have time to work through the context of Paul's comments as I said, so suffice it to say that in Paul's complicated relationship with the church of Corinth, He found it necessary to defend the legitimacy of his apostleship, but he didn't want to do it. He hated doing that. He didn't want to draw the attention to himself and what he had accomplished or what God had done through him. He didn't want to do it. Because unlike the false apostles who had infiltrated the church of Corinth and were destroying it, Paul didn't want anyone to think more highly of him than they ought to think. And so, to defend the legitimacy of his apostleship, Paul begins boasting in things that his opponents find absolutely reprehensible. If you're looking to a leader, you want to know what his credentials are. You want them to be impressive. And so here, Paul starts boasting in the things That authenticate his ministry. And here are just a a few. You can go to the previous chapter in this text and see the rest of them. But he boasted in a number of things, a number of times, how many times he had been beaten, how many times he had been shipwrecked, lashed, stoned even to death. He declared that. Everywhere he traveled, he was in danger. He was in danger of rivers. He was in danger of false brothers. He was in danger of false teachers. He was in danger of the Jews. He was in danger of the Gentiles. Everywhere he went, he was in danger. Nobody liked this guy. He was stirring up trouble. He was breaking the status quo. And everywhere the the so-called super apostles went... They were open, they were welcomed with open arms. And Paul was hated by everyone. Rather than being opened or received it with open arms, Paul was usually rejected and he was always in danger. And many times he was just sick. I mean physically ill. One time he even had to be, how's this for a credential? You want a a, a person to follow. You want them to be brave. Paul said, how about this credential? One time, the brothers had to lower me in a basket over the wall so I could run for my life. How's that for a credential? He says in chapter 11, verse 30, if I have to boast, I will boast about my weaknesses. But then in chapter 12, he switches over to visions, which he has seen. But the way he presents it causes one to wonder if Paul is speaking about himself or someone else. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Such a man was caught up into the third heaven. The third heaven is, is what the Jews labeled as the dwelling place of God. He was taken up into the third heaven, not just into the air above where we walk, not only into outer space, but into the very heaven of God. S. Lewis Johnson comments that it's striking to note here that Paul speaks of going to the third heaven in the third person, grammatically. According to the biblical record, Paul had several personal encounters with the risen Christ. But here Paul speaks of a specific time, 14 years previous to the writing of this letter, when he himself was taken into the third heaven, saw things that no one had ever seen, and heard things that he could not repeat. Behold, a man of monumental, spiritual, Privilege and favor with God. Yet Paul suffered. We might think of such a man as one whom God would protect and preserve from all the normal struggles of life, but no. In fact, by his own testimony, his own testimony, he suffered probably much more than most. My friends, if you've never truly suffered in this life. Don't let yourself feel cheated, because it's coming. It's coming, and it will be good for you if you respond well. If God's choice apostle suffered, you and I will also experience suffering. The inference of this passage is that God leads all Christians, all Christians, all Christians through the valley of suffering. As Job once said, man was born for trouble as surely as what? As the sparks fly upward. And the apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Suffering is common. Suffering is common to all men and women and children. And it's the the normal experience of the Christian life. If the venerable Paul, the apostle, was led by God into the valley of suffering, you too will be led there. Jesus was led there. The causes of suffering or many, sometimes mysterious. Sometimes suffering is a result of sin. Sometimes God ordains suffering to keep you from sin, as in the case here. Suffering occurs simply due to age. When you get older, things start breaking down. And those who preach health, wealth, theology, they have no category for this passage of Scripture. You have to completely reinterpret it. But This wasn't the case for Job, right? It's not that he had sinned. God had a plan for Job's suffering that he probably never fully understood. God never felt the need to explain. To be sure, we hardly ever know the exact reason that God is leading us into a specific valley of suffering, And in those moments, those days, and sometimes those years that we suffer, we are called simply to trust that his gracious providence is working, as we sang a moment ago, it's working for our good. It's working for our good. And so the first truth we should remember in the valley of suffering is that God leads all Christians through the valley of vision the valley of suffering. Secondly, God has a purpose for your valley. God has a purpose for your suffering. Look at verse 7. Paul writes, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. God brought the apostle Paul to his knees to protect him from the sin of pride. God's providence is always purposeful. God's providence is always purposeful. It doesn't mean you will know what the purpose is but just knowing this is true is helpful. The way I like to say it is, wherever I am, whatever I'm experiencing, I'm in God's place, moving at God's pace. My job is to trust him. God's providence is always purposeful. I, I, I think it's safe to say that anyone who has had a genuine, rela- a genuine revelation of the risen Christ and is caught up to the third heaven, that person is going to be tempted to flaunt his privilege and to become very arrogant and proud. Why did Paul receive the thorn? Well, in short, God wanted him humble. God wanted him humble. There's a a wonderful, fairly new book by David Mathis called Humbled. And it's wonderful. His primary premise is that God brings suffering into your life to humble you, and then he calls you to humble yourself. Why did he receive the thorn? Well, God wanted him humble. The kind of privilege that would would tempt even the best of men to develop a, a superior attitude. This is what he, Paul... What, what the Holy Spirit was concerned about. That he would consider himself superior. To think of himself higher than he ought to think. One commentator imagined a uh, fictitious encounter between the Apostle Paul and Timothy and Barnabas, trying to decide what direction to go to plant the next church. And um, Paul says, I think we, we should go to the north. We should go north. Barnabas and Timothy has already talked about this. And they have concluded the best way to go is south. No, Paul, you're going the wrong direction. We should go south. And Paul says, who's gone to the third heaven? <laughs> Do it my way. This is what the Lord was trying to stamp out and to keep from happening. God always wants his servant humble. Are you a servant of Christ? Are you a doulos of God? Are you a slave of Christ? God wants you humble. He will use you whether you're humble or not. But maybe he'll use you in ways that you don't want to be used. Paul would tell us that what God is looking in terms of humility is is not indecisiveness, It's not timidity. Rather, it's it's joyful submission to the will of God. That's humility. I've said this before. I'll say it again. You young people, when you're looking for a spouse, what should you look for? You should look for someone who has a verifiable history of joyful submission to the word of God and marry them. You'll be happy. You'll be right where God wants you. This is what it means to be humble, to be willfully, joyfully submissive to the word of God and the will of God. And so the Lord gave him a thorn, gave Paul a thorn. By the way, the word for thorn here, don't think of the prickly thing that we find on every Texas mesquite tree as though they are thorny. Rather, thorn here, the word for thorn, points to a very long wooden stick that has been sharpened to a point at the end and it's intended to be used in battle to kill your enemy. This might imply that sometimes, sometimes the kind of suffering that God appoints for us is excruciating. It is more than we think we can bear The thorn God gave Paul was intended to produce a a humble dependence on the Lord in the life of one who was arguably the most significant personality in the building of the New Testament church after Jesus only. As a point of application, whenever you find yourself in the valley of suffering, it's always appropriate to assume that God is humbling you. You should always assume that God is humbling you. So humble yourself before the hand of Almighty God that he may exalt you in the due season. God's primary purpose is to humble you. So God God escorted Paul into the valley of suffering. And he gave him a thorn, a, a messenger of Satan. I wish we had time to talk about that. I'll just say briefly That God used Satan here. He used Satan in Job's life. And theologically speaking, when we think about evil and the devil, here's what we know. God is sovereign over him. There is no such thing as the sovereignty of Satan, as some groups teach. He is merely God's lackey. He's on a leash. He can only do what God allows him to do. And it should tell us something about God's the level of desire in the heart of God that you be humble, that your church be holy. And what happened in the church of Corinth, there were some who were causing trouble, and the apostle Paul says, they, were like, they are like their father, the devil, who disguises himself as an angel of light. You know what God was doing in the church of Corinth? He's purifying her. Will he use Satan to accomplish it? Yes. So God sent him a, a messenger of Satan to torment. The word here means to scourge. To scourge him and to keep him from exalting himself. Paul knew that he was not above the sin of pride. He would most certainly be tempted as anyone in his position would. So what was the thorn? That's what everybody wants to know, right? And I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you that I don't know. (laughs) Neither do you. Nobody else does either. What was the thorn? Well, the fact is, I mean, search every commentary you own and... There will be some who will be confident with a plausible view. Some have speculated that it was a pain in the ear or the eye or the head. Some have said it was Hymenius and Alexander, two of Paul's great opponents. Some have said it's epilepsy. Someone else said it's seizures. Not sure where they get that from the text, but... Some says it's a problem with the eye, Some say it was malaria, which keeps coming back. Some have said it's depression. We know Paul got depressed. Luther thought it was a tendency toward despair. Someone has even suggested it was baldness. (laughs) The fact that we don't know what the thorn is is actually grace to us. God, it seems, has sovereignly arranged for it to be this way. And I think it's safe to say that he didn't, make, he didn't make it specific because he wanted to leave the door wide open so that you can apply your various troubles and suffering as you experience the valley of vision. How do you know whether God Whether God's thorn in your flesh is humbling you as designed, well, you'll know God's humbling influence is working when you find in your heart an irresistible desire to pray. I'll tell you what, over the last uh, month or so, I think I've prayed more than I have in a long time. My wife and I have prayed together more than we have. And that's what God wants, I'm convinced. How do you know he's humbling you? When you're humbled, you will pray. If you don't pray, you're proud. You're independent. This isn't for the super Christians. This is for all of us. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul did. He prayed. This is what Paul does in the valley of his suffering. He prays. And what did he pray for? Look at verse 8. He says, Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might leave me. I prayed, Lord, take it away, take it away, take it away. The reason I say that prayer is a sign of humility is that true prayer from the heart always, it's always a tacit confession of one's need, it's helplessness, his plea for intervention to do what you cannot do yourself. It's an admission that you are not sufficient. You are not enough for you you are not enough for your circumstance you can't resolve it you can't fix it you're in desperate need and if god is humbling you you will cry out to him and you will probably know what to say and notice how paul prayed notice how Not just that he prayed, but notice how he prayed. We read verse 8, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times, or we might say on three occasions. We don't know what the occasions were. We don't know what the three times were, but it was three occasions. Maybe it was when whatever was happening to his body would flare up. Maybe there were three occasions of that, or maybe it was three different attacks from, from the same people in the church of Corinth. We don't know. But three, on three occasions, he prayed that it might leave him. Can I just tell you something that's obvious and helpful, I think? Paul didn't want the suffering. Paul didn't relish the suffering. I heard of a Catholic priest one time who every morning would get up and put a, a pebble in his shoes so that he would suffer throughout the day. That's not true sanctification. That's not true self-sanctification. Uh, uh, it's, 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 not, it's not true anything. It's just foolishness. You don't have to create methods of suffering to be humbled. Just wait for it, it's coming. He wanted out, he didn't like this. He pleaded three times. And and beloved, this is instructive for us. It's instructive for me. When you're in the valley of suffering, listen carefully, when you're in the valley of suffering, it is not a sign of immaturity or unbelief to cry out that God would remove the suffering. It is okay to ask God to remove the suffering, it doesn't mean that you're weak or immature. It may very well mean you're exactly where God wants you to be. And so if you question that, if you question that it's okay for you to pray, God, take it away. All you need do is look at Matthew 26, where we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what was he praying? My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, Not as I will, but as you will. You see the humility there? You see the joy here? The submission to his father, joyful submission to his father. That's the pattern. Jesus wasn't ashamed to say, Father, take it away, take it away, take it away. It's okay, it's good. For you to pray like that just don't let that be the only thing you pray what was Jesus saying he was saying God I don't want to go down this road rescue me from the valley of the shadow of death in fact if you're still not convinced we could turn to Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 where we read in the days of his flesh Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he didn't save him from death my dear friends hear me it is normal right and good to desire to be out from out from under suffering and that applies to all kinds of suffering. It may be the loss of your job. It may be the shock of giving birth to a, a precious child who has special needs. It may be when the pain in your back you discover is is actually incurable cancer. When your spouse or your child suddenly dies when your boyfriend breaks up with you, when your house is burned to the ground, when you become disabled in some way, when you're trapped in an awful marriage, it's good to cry out for relief. It's good. And sometimes God answers our prayers. Remember the story of, of my mother who, um, when she became terribly ill, and she was full of cancer. And after the cancer, after the surgeries, they brought her to um, ICU. She was intubated. She could talk for a little bit, and then they intubated her, and, and then days went by, and she was declining, 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 declining. And there were members of this church who faithfully would come up to the hospital, and they would, two men would, would come and kneel beside the bed, and they would pray, God, be merciful. God, don't let her die. God, save her. God, bring her back to us. And be, me, me being a man of faith, in front of my mother, I was, uh, in my heart, I was saying, it's too late. <laughs> it's too late. And they're saying, it's not too late. God, she's still breathing. You could, you could rescue her. And I'm thinking, there's no way. There's no way. And one day she opened her eyes. And soon after that, they took out the intubator. A little while later, she was in rehab. A little while after that, she was home. And a little while after that, she repented and trusted Christ. And for the rest of her life, she would tell me, Danny, cancer brought me To Jesus. God's providences are always purposeful. It's good to cry out to God when you suffer. It's good to lay your burden down before His feet, your broken, dependent heart at His feet. Take your fears and your concerns to Him in prayer. Pour out your heart to Him, the psalmist says, and then joyfully submit to his will, remembering that his providence is always purposeful and it's always for your good. And so we have learned that God leads all Christians into the valley. God has a purpose for your valley. And now third, and this one may jolt you. So as John Street would say, put your helmet on, tighten up your seatbelt. Paul's testimony, verse 8, is this. I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might leave me, but he said to me, my grace is enough. My grace will be enough for you. My grace is sufficient for you. You have everything you need to be faithful in this time of trial and suffering. Even though God is able to bring relief to our suffering in the mystery of his good providence, he often withholds relief. He withholds relief. He withholds the the relief that we long for and desire. Here's, Here's the principle here. This is point number three. God doesn't promise relief in the valley. He doesn't promise relief in the valley. There will be relief one day. There will be the ultimate healing when you see him face to face. But he doesn't promise relief now. Does that jolt your soul? Does that frighten you? It might help to remember that in the Garden of Gethsemane, once again, Jesus received essentially the same answer from his father that Paul received. Jesus cried out for relief from the father and the father said, no, no. Listen, beloved, Jesus didn't triumph over suffering, he triumphed through suffering. And his father was glorified by his faithful suffering. His father did not rescue him from the cross The great triumph took place on the cross. Jesus obeyed the Father, even though everything in his humanity cried out for deliverance. And his Father gave him no relief. The prophet Isaiah, speaking of the coming Messiah, who would be Jesus, actually said that the Father was pleased to crush him. Why? Because he had a providential purpose of salvation to achieve. This implies that in God's sovereign design for your life, the cancer might actually end in death. Your husband may not repent and come home. Your son may embrace a lifestyle that lands him in jail or worse their injuries of that car wreck may never heal. God doesn't promise relief from the valley of suffering. But he does promise something. He does promise the grace, the grace that, that you desperately need. He promises grace, and he supplies the grace that you need. And this brings us to point four. Point four. God does promise sufficient grace in the valley. Look at verse 19. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now weakness here means dependency on Christ. That's weakness. Weakness is God's established vehicle for grace. It is a means of grace. But we need to understand. We need to understand grace properly in this context if we're going to understand what Paul's teaching us. What is grace? If I were to ask you to to give me an answer out loud, I bet I know what you would say. You would say, God's grace, grace is unmerited favor, right? Right? It is, as Paul says in Romans, it is the free gift of God, which leads to salvation. Or you might say, grace can be an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense, right? That's a good one. What is grace? Well, all of this is true. The three definitions I just gave you are biblical and true. In fact, we we know this from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the what? The gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. This is grace. Grace in that text points to the unmerited impulse in the heart of God to save sinners apart from their law-keeping. And when we're talking about salvation, this definition of grace is absolutely right. It is not wrong. But in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul has a different kind of grace in mind. You say, there's a different kind of grace? Well, in the heart of God, it's all one. It's all him. But to put a point on it, this is kind of a different kind or different segment of grace, manifestation of Grace. In the passage before us, the grace that Paul alludes to is the grace that comes when the pain of suffering won't go away. It's the grace that sustains us when relief doesn't come. It's the the grace that gives us the ability to take the next step forward when you know you can't take the next step and you do it anyway. This kind of grace is synonymous with the word power here. You see the word power? And Jesus' answer to Paul was this. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. And power is synonymous with the term grace. The kind of grace, the kind of grace, this kind of grace empowers you to kiss the rod, to kiss the wave, as Spurgeon says, and give glory to God, even when it feels like your life is falling out from under you. It's the unexpected desire and ability to sing through your tears, your thankful adoration to the shepherd of your soul. It is one who shepherds you through the valley of the shadow of death. This is grace. Its power, its power takes us, removes our fear, and fills our hearts with supernatural joy in the midst of your suffering. We read about that in Romans 5. It's the kind of grace that That welcomes any trial so long as it causes us to know Christ and fellowship with Him more than ever before. That's the grace He's talking about. It's the kind of power that enables you to say, Bless you, cancer. Bless you, broken marriage. Bless you, COVID-19. Bless you, diabetes. Bless you, lost job. Bless you, wife lost after 57 years. Bless you, heart attack. If it were not for you, I would never have known the overwhelming glory of Christ's presence, his promises, his power, his comfort, and his indescribable love. You only get that in the valley. The valley of vision. Only there do you begin to see clearly. When Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, he meant my grace is enough. Grace is enough. Because I am enough. And I will never leave you nor forsake you. How many times does God say that in the Old and New Testaments? I will never leave you. I never have left you. But it took the valley of suffering to show you how near I have always been. That's why it's called the valley of vision. And this brings us to the last point. God leads every Christian through the valley. God has a purpose for every valley. God doesn't promise relief in the valley, but God does promise sufficient sufficient grace in the valley. And finally, God contents our heart with joy in the valley. Look at verse 9. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest or dwell upon me. I will boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And and by the way, that phrase at the end of verse 9 is noteworthy. Again, S. Lewis Johnson points out that the phrase that the power of Christ may rest upon me could be translated, he says, that the power of Christ may tabernacle over me. It's a veiled reflection of the Old Testament when Moses would meet with God face to face in the tent of meeting as intimate friends. It's the picture of intimate fellowship between close comrades. Paul was willing to endure any amount of suffering in the valley so long as it resulted in deeper fellowship with Christ. To the church in Philippi, he wrote this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and then he says for the sake of Christ then i am content i am content with weaknesses insults hardships persecutions calamities for when i am weak then i am strong you see beloved we know something the world can never know we know the meaning suffering. We know the meaning of suffering. We don't know the meaning of suffering until God tells us and he's told us. And if you are here today having thought that your hardships are meaningless, bad luck, bad karma, I have a better word for you. Every time you suffer, it is wise to believe that God himself is humbling you so that you will come to the end of yourself and discover that the God who made you is ready to reconcile with you if you will come to him in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will save you. I plead with you, come to him today. Today is the, salva- the day of salvation. Now is the time. Don't put it off. In the darkest nights of the soul, God upholds his people with his powerful grace. Let's pray. want I confess that these are things that we strive for and never fully achieve, but you have been faithful to give us a taste of your goodness in unhappy providences. Thank you, Father, for revealing these things to us. We are unworthy of such gifts, such truth. They are, they serve as the ballast in our ship that keeps our little bark upright when the storms come and even in the midst of the storm O Lord you often stand up in the boat as it were as you did with your disciples and cry out shalom peace be still I pray Father that you would grant that we would speak truth to our own hearts be still, O oh my soul. Know that He is God. He is our comfort. He is our righteousness. He is our help. He is our refuge. He is our strong tower. And He is our Savior. And so we bless Him. We bless your name and thank you for this hour.